1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So Gary Clark Jr. has a new album called This Land coming out March 1st, and my colleague Patrick Doyle came in right here in the SiriusXM studios the other day and sat down with Gary. to Talk about the new album, which is a real step forward for him. Gary's this great blues guitarist who doesn't want to be just a great blues guitarist in 2018. He wants to make music that transcends the blues and speaks to this time. And I think he started doing that. There's a great new single that we'll talk about called This Land out. But let's hear what Gary and Patrick Doyle had to say.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about how you made this record? Because most people think of it like you go into the studio with a producer and they kind of guide you along then a label puts it out and it's sort of a structured thing but you didn't really stick to any rules with this thing, right?
2: No, I didn't. Warner was cool enough to let me just go out on my own. I love the idea of production. I got into music because I was drawn into arrangements and sounds. So they let me do my thing i went to uh well actually this is how it started off so i knew i had to I had to make a record and i wanted to make something but i didn't know exactly what i was going to do how i was going to approach it so i've always loved making beats mm-hmm. and i finally stepped my game up and got a new npc and figured out how to use it and i really just started messing around from there and my buddy sean mccarthy he hooked me up cool guy man he hooked me up with the hard drive of all this music that i never really heard before I mean, most of maybe 10,000 songs or something like that. So I'm just running through, trying to find samples and flip things up and just making beats for myself. And I Mm -hmm. think it would be a record and um, also trying to figure out how to record into this thing. So I started feeling like I was starting to get somewhere, still didn't know what it was going to be. And then I finally made this beat, this track on the record called I Got My Eyes On You and um that was one of the things i was like well i could use this for me i could put some guitar on it and you know i think we could really do something here playing drums on it and then the guys were like nah you're terrible let's do better did you used to play drums in a band i used to play drums in certain bands you know like I would be maybe third string. You know, Mm. they'd call me up if the good guys weren't there. So (laughs) I'll maybe third or fourth string, and I would back a few guys up. But um, I have no discipline as a drummer. I think every single place in the song is an appropriate place for a drum fill. So yeah, I haven't been called for a drum gig in a while. I think I got fired without being told. (laughs) When I was in the studio talking to
0: Jacob, who co-produced and did some engineering on the record with you, he said that he thinks you're such a
2: great guitar player because of your skill as a drummer well that's very nice but I think however for this record my skills as a drummer were not needed yeah (laughs) so uh that's what we brought in Brandon Temple and J.J. Johnson who are world class and laid it down so
0: wow and you were in the studio for like seven or eight months almost on and off but this was all night sessions they could go into the sun comes up
2: yeah you know I spend time at home do the family guy thing you know have dinner put the kids to bed and then I dip off to the studio I like working at night because it's quiet. Mm -hmm. You know, the phone doesn't ring. If anybody wants to get a hold of me, it's for an emergency or they want me to meet them at the club. (laughs) You know what I mean? There's nothing really pressing so I can just kind of focus and do my thing and, and shut it down.
0: And uh, so what is it like for you to be in Austin? Because you didn't, never moved away from Austin. You didn't necessarily go to LA or New York. You grew up there and you grew up on the scene as a, the, there's no other place where the guitar and, and blues music is so popular. But I'm curious what it's like for you now to be the sort of top dog there.
2: Top dog there? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say that. I, I, there's a lot of great musicians. Just fortunately, I, you know, I got a turn, you know what I mean? Like, I got a shot to get out here and be seen on a, you know, by the world. I mean, I can name, if I had multiple hands, those guys who would, you know, who could rip, you know what I mean? Yeah. But um, I think I was in the right place at the right time. And I think the thing that separates me from a lot of people is I started really doing original things and thinking outside the box. And I had these guys, John McCorkle and Brian Smith, and they grabbed me from a, a blues bar called Joe's Generic when I was maybe 18 or 19 and they grabbed me over and said come down to this spot we're thinking about doing some Monday night music you know this is kind of like a college bar we got some young kids we want to introduce them to some real music and so it took these like blues loving people I was playing for them and then all of a sudden I was playing for these young college kids and it just kind of grew from there and so I got out of this kind of tight circle and started moving around so is it kind That's of like Nashville where
0: there's the strip where everyone's kind of covering made big country songs? Is it like, I mean, is that what Sixth Street in Austin is like uh, a bit where you're, people are covering Stevie Ray Vaughan and paying homage yeah. to stuff that came
2: before? Yeah, sure. Sure. There's there's a lot of that going on. And it's, it's strange because it's, it's a little bit tough down there because the venues don't want to pay a lot, mm-hmm. you know venues don't want to pay you anything and no one cares about your original songs if they haven't seen you on tv or heard you on the radio no one's really willing to give you a shot so what a lot of people do is they'll play covers and play popular songs and bring people in because they're not being paid yeah. you know a lot of them work for tips and so people will walk in and you know hear something familiar they'll sit there and they'll stay for a while and then maybe you can throw in an original or mm-hmm. something and then sell them a cd of originals you know what i mean like hook them in and it's like gotcha you know yeah what I mean? but um it's tough to there you know i wish it was better they started no disrespect to djs but it was just cheaper and easier to pay one guy to hang out all night and set up all night than to have multiple bands and pay different musicians and certain attitudes and Mm -hmm. you know all that type of stuff but um there's people still ripping i don't even know what you're asking me about but that's what got awesome i just kept going (laughs) you remember when you first caught sight of the guitar when did it first intrigue you i first saw a guitar in my house my dad had a guitar had a couple of guitars and my first memory of an encounter with a guitar was trying to pull it off the wall and it falling to the ground and shattering. Oh. So that was the first time <laughs> I saw one. I wasn't able to touch one for a while. But uh, the thing that really got me intrigued by the guitar would draw me in was seeing videos of Jackson 5 and seeing Tito Jackson playing a Red Gibson 335 or whatever it was. And um, That's similar to what you played for a while. Yeah, I think that's why I do it. I think that's why I Got it. You know all the cool badasses were playing Red 335. You know Freddie King, and it, it just if you're gonna do this, you gotta have one of those. It seemed like so. And that's
0: a hollow body guitar with uh it's an F hole kind of a hole in, in the guitar. Yeah,
2: F holes. It's kind of it's like <laughs> it looks like a fat candy paint violin. <laughs> and what do those sound like? Is that a, a fat or fatter sound? I like those guitars because. When I'm traveling, you know, sometimes you can't always have an amp, but I like the way that the neck feels. It feels electric, but you can also get a an acoustic sound out of it. You know what I mean? So if you're sitting around, if I'm with my wife or whatever, I'm trying to practice, she wants to hear me a little bit. She can hear me, you know what I mean? Without right. turning it up and, and making a lot of noise.
0: And uh, the place where you, you really got your start uh, on a stage was at Antone's, which is a, a club in in Austin owned by Clifford Antone, who mentored Stevie Ray Vaughan and... Put Muddy Waters and Hubert. Someone, a lot of these guys got to play there when there wasn't a market necessarily for blues clubs at the time. A big blues club. He brought it back.
2: Is that true? That's partially true. I mean, they over on the east side, you know, they had a lot of a lot of clubs. You know, it's black clubs. Yeah, the Victory Grill. Bobby Blue Bland and B.B. King would come play. Mm-hmm. You know, had all the greats that were playing over there. And what Clifford Antone did was he brought it to a younger audience. His first club was down on 6th Street right downtown, and then they moved over to, uh, down towards um, University of Texas on 29th Street, down on the, on the drag uh, street called Guadalupe. So just by his doors being open, he'd attract these younger folks and introduce this young kind of white audience, kind of hippies, into this blues thing. So you'd have Buddy Guy playing, you know, with somebody like Derek O'Brien. He was a young guy trying to figure it out. And so he just brought this whole scene together. It was young, old, black, white, all fall in love with this music. You know, he introduced people to Zydeco, being from Port Arthur, Texas, right on the border of Louisiana. He knew about the Chicago blues and he had these relationships with all these people. So he would just call them up, put them up, and invite everybody out. And it just turned into this, the scene that just grew and grew and grew. And these young people would come see these shows and would be inspired. And the next thing you know, they'd be up on stage because Clifford was so welcoming that if you were into it and you want to be a part of this community, if you had the enthusiasm and the talent, people, get up there, kid. You know what I mean? Come on, let's go. Wow, Let's go, let's go. He created a scene that is is still resonating and people are still inspired all over the world. They want to come to Anton. Right. You know, my dream is to get good enough to play a blues at Anton's. How old were you when you first did that? I was 15. Wow. I was 15, underage. I had X's on my hand. And uh, I got up on stage with Pine Top Perkins, James Cotton. And he played with Muddy Willie Waters? Billy Big Eyes Smith was oh, there wow. that night. George Brains on drums, Calvin Fuzz Jones on bass. Wow. I think maybe Gene Taylor on piano. But I mean, all these guys played with the guys like Muddy Waters, you know, Alan Wolf, Hubert Sum. I mean, come on, man. Yeah. At 15, that was my first experience there and Clifford Anton had been doing that for 20 years before I showed up you know what I mean changing people's lives you know Fabulous Thunderbirds Jimmy Vaughn Kim Wilson Stevie Ray Vaughn you know Clifford Anton put Stevie Ray Vaughn on stage with Albert King and it was over mm-hmm. you know what I mean so that place is very special and um. I wouldn't be doing what I was doing without Clifford Antone. Well, the place was gonna was
0: on the verge of shutting down, or it did shut down for a while. And mm-hmm. you came in with a friend of yours and brought it back. You invested and became a partner and, and brought Antone's back.
2: Yeah, there was a period of time in Austin, Texas, where there was no Antone's nightclub. And it just felt like people felt a little bit lost, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, it was such a scene that had been there. It was a staple. You know, you think of the Capitol, you think of Town Lake. Antones and barbecue, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, for that place to go away, it just felt wrong. It was a huge void in the scene. And Clifford Antone always taking care of people. So, anyway, Will Bridges, shout out to him. He approached me. He's like, I'm thinking about taking this thing on. What do you want to do? What can we do? I said, If you need me to help in any way, um, I'm up for it. And uh, so, we got it up and running, and it's, it's great. It's beautiful. The vibe's still there, you know? It's, it feels complete again. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's cool to see the young folks come up with their guitars over their backs and come <laughs> check it out and see these people and go, Man, I'm oh I'm next. Yeah. It's exciting, man. It's, well, that's that's incredible. So <laughs> if you're in Austin, go check out Antones, man. It's happening.
0: Yeah. Did any of those guys give you any advice that stuck with you? The guys who played with Muddy and How and Wolf and do you remember any, any nights when you were sitting with them after and anything that you learned from them?
2: Um yeah, a lot of the guys they would give me advice and it, it was I understood what they were trying to say to me, but it was a lot of, you know, you got to keep the blues alive. Right. You know, So I felt that pressure a little bit. Right. And I was taking that on as a teenager. I was like, I got to be a blues man forever. Mm-hmm. But I think what it was is just, just respect where you come from. You know, just respect us when you leave here without saying it like, we know what we did for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know yeah. what you did for me. Yeah. And I appreciate it. And I always show love. Last time I saw Clifford Anton before he passed away, the last thing he said to me, is play some Jimmy Reed. Because uh, I was up there doing some other stuff. I was thinking I was playing a song like Things Are Changing from a, you know, an older album. And he's like, eh, I get it, but play Jimmy Reed. And so I always take that as like a don't forget mm-hmm. where you come from. You, know, you never know where you're going if you don't know where you come from. Yeah. That, Jimmy Vaughn, first time I went out on tour, he saw me drinking. And he just came to me with a bottle of water and just pointed at it. Said no words. That was it. Just (laughs) walked away. Um, Yeah, just fun little things like that, man. And just be yourself. Be true to yourself, really.
0: So you spent a lot of years just playing the Austin club scene and learning how to how to play for an audience. And you told me once that that is actually way different than playing for a festival or a big arena show, that you had to learn how to be a performer um, on a bigger stage. You have to project yourself in a different way.
2: Oh, yeah. 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 Someone's saying to me, you know, I was at a big venue, and they're saying, we're here to see you. Right. You know what I mean? I spent so much time in blues bars and funky joints where it would be i'd be playing on stage and there'd be like the football game on and a big ass screen behind me. you know what i mean (laughs) so i'd be like i would be singing but i'm like i'm not trying to i'm background noise you know what i mean i'm I'm here i'm here to serve i'm doing a service here always tell me to turn down you know can you turn it down so it took me a while you know when that lady screamed at me like we're here to see you i had to snap out of the blue joint thing I'm like yeah my name's on the marquee you know what I mean it's time to go <laughs> but yeah that was a funky reality check you know I was like snap into it it's like years later I'm up there still thinking that the UT football game is on behind me
0: and the place where you broke through on a bigger stage was at the Crossroads uh, Guitar Festival which Eric Clapton puts on every few years and I was there it was, was like 2010 yeah. and um, I remember a room where it was just B.B. King Hubert Someone, Johnny Winter, all of the greats were all there. And you were living in Austin. You didn't have a deal at the time, and you were considering giving up music before they asked you to come play that is that true
2: i wasn't considering necessarily giving up music but i was gonna i was not gonna put on the forefront i was like maybe i gotta do something else you know i had a, a sweet woman claire she let me rent out her house and set up my studio space there and cut demos and you know i was paying rent late and trying to buy gear to do this and i just wasn't adding up and i felt like i need to make this work but i need to spend the time to work on my craft but it's not working so maybe I gotta do something else maybe I'll come back to it maybe I'll try something else and I can stack up some paper and figure this out but I was also battling with I, maybe I don't have that time and the music business you know like if you were you, like 25 if you're not young right then you can't get in you know what I mean this whole thing so I was feeling all these types of ways and so I'm sitting in my house and bills aren't being paid and my electricity gets cut off and I got no lights just sitting there in a the dark burning candles like damn what am I gonna do I can't do this the struggling starving artist this shit is not cute yeah you know what I mean I'm over it And then so Doyle Bramhall called me up and said, hey, man, Clapton's going to invite you to this Crossroads Festival in Chicago. I said, Crossroads Festival? Like, with, like, everybody? Right. He's like, yeah, man. He's like, I'm not sure, but we were talking about it, you know. Between him and Jimmy Vaughn, they talked to Clapton about me, and next thing I know, I get this letter in the mail, and it's like, we want to officially invite you to Crossroads 2010 in Chicago, you know, with Toyota Park. We'll see you there. And I showed up, man, with my... Epiphone guitar, 20 bucks in my pocket and changed my life, man. A matter of minutes, like 10 minutes, my life changed. Wow. I've never seen 30,000 people anywhere, you know? So they're all staring at me and I'm like, I got to do something. The sound went out. The sound went out in the whole venue. So (laughs) the front of house sound goes out. So people are screaming and they're yelling and I can hear boos and I can see people thumbs down. And I'm like, I cannot believe I came all the way over here for this moment and it's going down like this. They hate me. Oh. And I didn't know that the sound was off. So Doyle Bramhall comes over and he whispers in my ear. He goes, front of house sound is off. Just play. Just keep playing. Just keep playing. We're going to come back around. You finish up your solo. You sing the last verse. We'll get into it. Don't sweat. This is all going down. You can see it on the DVD in the video. And I'm like, cool. So I keep playing. I keep playing. And then all of a sudden, the sound comes back on like right at the end of my solo, and everybody starts screaming and oh, cheering. So man. on the DVD, it looks like I'm doing some epic <laughs> shit. They're just happy because the sound comes back on. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so, yeah, I'm, I'm hanging out backstage, and um, Tom Wally and Andy Oliphant, who used to work at Warner, approached me and said, thinking about doing something. Am I interested? Here's my info. Call me up, man, and change my whole thing right there, just like that. Wow. You know, and put us out on tour, Bonnaroo Buzz tour with Grace Potter. And that was it, man. That, that changed everything. Yeah.
0: And how did that change your life, your day to day life? You were on the road all the time from there on out?
2: Yeah, I was on the road. I, I left in summer of 2011, I think. And um, I didn't get back for a while. And, um, I didn't know what it was like to be there long, came back and there's all kinds of critters in my house, spider webs and stuff, <laughs> you know, I was like, Oh, okay. This is what it's like to be on the road, you know, but it, I could turn my lights on. You know what I mean? I was eating every day. Yeah. I put some food in my refrigerator when I got back, which is a great feeling. Yeah. You know, I was like, okay. All right. And I think we're good for a minute.
0: What do you think spoke to you about the blues at, at that time and beforehand when you were playing Antones? and I mean, what was the song, that, artist, that you felt
2: like that was what you had to do? You know, I heard Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan straight up. That was my introduction to blues and rock and roll music because I've been listening to R&B and stuff. I thought I was going to be in a group like Boys to Men. <laughs> you did? Or like 112 <laughs> or like Immature or something. like That's kind of what I was into it was like R&B stuff. And dancing, and I saw these guys and these girls playing the guitar. You know, from Bonnie Raitt playing slide to BB King. You know, and they're playing Stevie's songs, but I never heard anything be expressed. It, it didn't. It wasn't polished to me. Everything mm-hmm. else was kind of shiny, right? And I liked that it was not perfect. It was vulnerable and it was raw and it was nasty. And these vo- these guys didn't have beautiful voices. They had voices of experienced people who've gone through some things. You know what I mean? it was real to me and i just kind of snapped into it i was like whoa it made me feel something i got goosebumps and i got chills man and i i'd never shed a tear listening to music before i listened to like blues Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so i listened to a slide guitar go and that reverb was like whoa whoa (laughs) you know what i mean like what the hell was that so you have a son now what if you were to turn him onto the blues what would be the first thing you played for him For my boy, yeah, turn him on to the blues. I think I would hip him to blues power, Albert King, like Mm -hmm. the you know, the live version. He's like, This is blues power, you know, everybody has the blues, you know. And he starts telling this whole story, and he's like, I ain't seen my main squeeze in 99 and a half days, you know. know I got the blues, and he he just busts into this crazy lead. was it so i think i would introduce him to that and plus the, I mean, it's just nasty the grooves heavy the it sounds awesome and it you sound like you're in the room with him so that's what i would play with for him right off the bat some albert king
0: so when you um, play crossroads and play next to all these blues legends and they're all telling you to keep the blues alive that's one thing you have on you but you also need to carve out your own path and and not be somebody who just continues a tradition. How did you wrap your head around both
2: of those worlds? Well, I simply just—I'm a product of my environment and the time that I'm in. And you know, going back to—you don't know where you're going unless you know where you're coming from. I was born in 1984, so in my house it was blues, R&B, soul music. That's just what I grew up on. That's—it's just you can't remove that from me you know what i mean when i got to be about 12 13 this biggie and there's tupac happening and i'm introduced to the wu-tang clan and rizzo's production and dj Premier, swiss beats and dmx and like rough riders and this whole thing and dmx like, had a great blues voice i, I mean yeah <laughs> dmx could make a fire blues album yeah you know what i mean like but so i would hear these i would hear this music like DMX slipping, I'm slipping, I'm falling, I can't oh, get up. That's a up. great song, yeah. You know what I mean? Hearing that, that sounds like blues to me. Yeah. So I was like, it's all the same. We're just telling our story. The scenery has changed a little bit. With the music, it, it paints a different picture, but the stories are still the same. The soul is still there, you know what I mean? So I was like, and hearing Wu-Tang spit over Albert King, links, I was like, I can do what I want now. You can't tell me anything. Mm-hmm. Cody Chestnut dropped the headphone masterpiece in the early 2000s. You can't tell me. Anything. It's wide open. And um, so instead of spending my time and playing music in the past 30, 40, 50 years, well, where's it gonna go for the next 30, 40, 50 years? And start thinking that way. And then it's just like, I'm just here. I'm going. I'm gonna be whoever I am. And I'll represent the blues till the day that I die. But I'm also gonna represent everything else because that's what I love. Quincy Jones is a huge inspiration to me. Quincy Jones has been trying to break the barriers of genre since he started playing and just accepting people for being artists. And he's made some of the most beautiful music that will yeah. stand the test of time.
0: I was just he, looking at what he did because he has more Grammy nominations than anybody. For Count
2: Basie to Thriller and Sinatra. So, yeah. His movie, film, music catalog is so heavy and it's so different that it's like... When I think about being a musician, I think, like, this is just me. If you're not trying to be Quincy Jones, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Just stop. You ever spend time with him? I spend a little bit of time with him, but he's always surrounded by people. Yeah. And so I just want to leave him alone, you know what I mean? Just kiss the hand and walk away type yeah. thing you know what i mean but i had an experience i met him a couple of years ago at a party after the uh, academy awards and i walk up to him and as soon as i start to walk up to him don't stop till you get enough starts playing <laughs> i was like yes <laughs> man so i'm good on that but he's always been real sweet and, and supportive of, you know showed me some love
0: do you think that was the door open for you because uh this music was not being played or is it harder because it's not being played? So a label might be worried that there wouldn't be anybody that wanted to hear it. It's playing guitar, rock and roll, blues music at a time when that isn't very popular.
2: Yeah, I think so. But you know, people say everything circles back around every yeah. couple of decades or something. It felt like music was kind of getting a little bit lost for me. I didn't, I wasn't following. Yeah, and so I was just like, you know what? Yeah, I'm not a rap. I'm not an R and B singer. This is where I feel comfortable, and this is where I fit. And I think this is the wave like let's pick up these instruments and and bring this kind of stuff back and it felt like the right thing to do and it still does you know I I just there's no Patrick I don't know yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's fair um You broke your hand when you were making yeah, this record. Yeah. Um, what, what happened there?
2: I got pissed off. I was drinking rum and hit something.
0: <laughs> that's more than you told me last time. You yeah. just said next.
2: Well, you keep asking me. I was like, you know what? <laughs> Damn it!
0: Here it is. Yeah. So we we're looking so, into it because you said it was a boxer's break, and so I was looking into it. and It has to be from hitting. Now you up. have to hit something
2: very hard <laughs> and unsuccessfully. <laughs> so yeah, that's what happened. It messed me up for a few weeks. I did a gun chuck on the record, playing guitar with a cast on my hand yeah
0: how um, does that change your you playing
2: you just gotta hold your hand different man try not to get the velcro <laughs> the cast stuck in the strings yeah that was about it but yeah flip my wrist a little bit and keep my fingers out of the way it was a little bit rough but once i got into it is it made me pay attention you know it made me appreciate The fact that i was able to play for so long and and figure it out but once you can't really do it it's like dang did you
0: worry you wouldn't be able to play properly again
2: i was a little bit when i went to some doctors in austin and um i found that there was no real hand specialist. i mean there were worried but they were going to send me to like somebody that i didn't feel was comfortable and qualified Mm -hmm. (laughs) no disrespect (laughs) austin texas got some great doctors but I wanted to go with somewhere where like, people had a pro sports team or like people who deal with injuries. So I came up to New York. The sweet doctor took care of me and said I was going to be fine. He said, uh, you know, you're going to be a little bit sore for a while, but we'll have you out of that thing in a few weeks and get back to business. So that's what happened. My first gig showing up with my hand in a cast was I did A God's Love in New York with John Barbados And uh, my first gig was on stage with Keith Richards and Robert Cray. Wow. Where was that? This was... I think it's at the Beacon. So I show up and we do rehearsal, and I couldn't get it together. Like For some reason, I just got in a new cast and I couldn't get it together. So I'm struggling through rehearsal, and Keith just looks up at me and he goes, You're just here for the pictures, eh, hey, mate? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, Damn. <laughs> so, yeah, I had to get it together real quick.
0: <laughs> you have spent a lot of time on stage with the Stones, more than maybe anybody in the last 20 years. Wow. Really? I think so. I mean, they very rarely invite people up, and you were up there several times on their last tour. Yeah, they, they let were... me hang out a good bit. Yeah, I didn't know
2: that. Wow. Well, I feel honored, man. What did you play with them uh, when you were up with, with the Stones? Uh, we played Bitch, and we played Going Down, uh, Freddie King. What's
0: the feeling like to be on, on stage as as they're playing?
2: It's tripped out, man. Yeah, I mean, it's like the Rolling Stones. I'm looking over, and like, Mick Jagger's in my face with the microphone. He's doing his thing, and I'm looking over. Keith, Ronnie going back and forth, Charlie. It's cool, man. It's it's cool that when they started to get really popular, they would bring guys like Howlin' Wolf to come sit in with them and give them their right. props and be like, we wouldn't be here. We named our song or ourselves after Muddy Waters. So they've really shown the blues a lot of love and done their own thing, which is kind of inspiring. And I think that is cool that they'll call me up, you know, this next version of what you call like the blues guy and kind of give me a chance. Like, it's just cool, man, to be included. And, and um, they're rock stars, man. Rock stars, like 70-something years old, just, like, doing it, bro. Yeah. If I get tired now, I'm telling you I can't say anything when I'm right. like them.
0: So your new album, This Land, I got the chance to hear it in the studio with you, and it goes from, like, that stripped-down acoustic blues, country blues kind of stuff that you recorded after you broke your hand to... Stuff that sounds like Prince Stuff that sounds like Sort of like Childish Gambino We were talking mm. about But the first song you're putting out Is called This Land Which is a really powerful song And it really addresses Something that's really important Right now But is horrible racism In this country And, the, and that you wrote about On that record I'm just curious about What made you want to Go there And right out of the gate Your first single out On this record and A song with such a strong message
2: Now that I got the money 50 acres in a Model a. Trump country. I told you there goes a the neighborhood. Now, Mr. Williams ain't so funny. I see you looking out your window. Can't wait to call the police. Oh well, I got to tell you, that wasn't necessarily my decision to go with this land yeah. Yeah. out of the gate. I was like, really? This is what? Really? Yeah. I figured we Okay. <laughs> okay. I think it's powerful. I think the beginning of it. You know, it puts you in a mood and I think it kind of sets a tone. I mean, I'm ready for it. I mean, let's go. Let's quit with all the cute shit. Let's go. Let's get into it. We got some issues going on in this world. And I got a microphone that's loud enough to where I got a few people to hear. Let's address this so we don't have to talk about it anymore. You know, what the issue is, is it's 2019 and we've got legal citizens who are supposed to have equal rights equal opportunities, is still not happening. Yet, we're all supposed to sing the Star Spangled Banner and stand up and respect that. Um, no, no, we're here. We accept it. Everybody's here. We should all get a shot. There's no segregated graveyards. We're spending all our time being angry and being in fear of people for no reason without having a conversation. So let's love each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, let's spend more time doing that. Of course, don't cross me. That's going to be a problem. Man. But it's easier to be nice and it's nicer when you're nice and it's just nicer when it's nice. We yeah. can all be here together. you can believe whatever you want. You, you don't want to rock with me. You don't. I don't rock with you. Cool. But you know what I'm saying? Like we're here. Let's just accept that. We are we're all trying to do what we can to support ourselves and look out for the people we got around us and do the best we can, you know, and make the best of this opportunity in this land, the home of the free and the brave and all that. Yeah. Just let it be that, man. That's all.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what was the feeling like when you played that song for the people at your record label for the first time? It does not hold back. It's the most one of the, the most powerful song I've heard and in, in the last one I can remember. It's just huh. incredible.
2: Well, the reaction when we played it for the label was um there was a brief silence followed by Whoa. Yeah. And some some excitement and some just like holy shit. Which was cool. I didn't know what it was going to be. You know, I never, you didn't know what it was going to be. But, um. yeah, it was positive. It's time for a record like this. It may be a little hard to digest, but thank you.
0: Yeah, the song is coming out the same week of uh, government shutdown and speech from the Oval Office about a wall in your home state.
2: What is it like for you to watch that? I mean, to see. You know. <sighs> it's like what it's like for everybody else, I guess. You yeah. You know, depending on which side of the coin you're on. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't have all the answers,
0: Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to go on tour and play this, this record, and you're going to you have three nights at the Beacon Theater and three nights in some of the biggest theaters around the country. And mm. that's a pretty amazing thing to be able to to sell out those places. And do you change your show from night to night when you have do three nights in the same theater?
2: Oh, well, I try and switch the set list around a little bit. If there's some guests mm-hmm. around, I might have somebody pop up. Mm-hmm. and and do that um, but it's gonna be different with this album we got a new guy in the band who's been rocking with us I think we're gonna switch some things up but it's exciting man be able to have three nights in some of these venues you know it's, it's cool man it's, it just shows that there's a lot of love and I appreciate it people are sharing and and, and showing some love and bringing their people out and people bringing their moms out and their father, daughters, you know. It's awesome to see everybody who comes out to these shows and just keeps getting bigger. So I'm grateful, man. I'm excited.
0: Music is so, it's so strange right now and how to, to judge what is a success at this point because you're playing three nights at at the beacon theater and then i'll go see someone who maybe has 100 million streams on spotify and they can't even sell out a place like terminal five a pretty big place in new york do you judge it by your audience what you see at your live shows or how do you
2: how do I measure what? a success um success man for me success i can keep the lights on now man. yeah i got food yeah my family's taken care of that's success for me Everything else is just gravy, you know? I know that I got a lot of people who have helped me fulfill my dreams, and I, I want to win and go big so everybody can, like, have some of that. I think that's the next thing. But, you know, as far as streams and, and all that, records and all that kind of stuff, you know, to be able to have 100 sh- million streams here, and some, some art is to be seen live, and some of it is... To be heard on record and Mm -hmm. depending on who your audience is and what your thing is you know I guess it correlates in some way I don't know it's Mm -hmm. getting wild out here man yeah (laughs) Wild West I'm happy to be a part of it though let's go
1: Patrick will have a pretty lengthy feature with Gary explaining how this all came about and a little bit about what he talked about in the interview today about how uh, Gary started programming beats on a drum machine and really just found a new place on this album and maybe it'll be the breakthrough, I mean he's a guy who's been known as a great live performer and blues guitarist but maybe now he'll be a truly like a modern artist that people are really paying attention to in that way but in any case this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now, thanks to Patrick Doyle and Gary Clark Jr. for taking the bulk of the episode for me and we'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume channel 106 in the meantime we are a podcast download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to us as Podcast, maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. Don't complain about the length of the music clips. Uh, I see people do that. It's you know, it's a legal thing. We can't play whole songs. Go on Spotify. What are you gonna do? So, as always, though, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.